Good morning. It's Monday, June 14th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Politics and race may splinter the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. Members of the Southern Baptist Convention are meeting in Nashville this week for their annual conference. Many congregants, and especially the church's black pastors, are feeling isolated because of allegations the SBC will not, as the New Yorker puts it, collectively acknowledge the realities of systemic racism. It's all going to come to a head in the next few days, when the convention votes for its next president. The New Yorker explains the race is down to two conservative hardliners and a third candidate who's been involved in racial reconciliation efforts. Religion reporter Eliza Griswold explains a rift has been developing for a while now, and it got amplified during Donald Trump's presidency. This article comes at that explanation by profiling African-American pastor Dwight McKissick. He leads a congregation of 4,000 people in Arlington, Texas, and he's been in that role for nearly 40 years. He says the mostly passive racism he's experienced within the conference is now much more overt and warns if either of the two hardliners wins the presidency this week, he's done. He's leaving the SBC. And he wouldn't be the first. A growing number of prominent Southern Baptists say they're leaving because of the way the convention has responded to racial and social justice issues. They say prominent Southern Baptist leaders have fought against efforts to teach about systemic racism. For some context here, The New Yorker points out the history of the Southern Baptist Convention is defined by racism. To defend slavery, the church split from its northern counterparts in 1845. It supported the Confederacy in the Civil War. And in modern times, hardliners even pushed back against allowing women to serve as pastors. McKissick doesn't mince words when he talks about this rising right wing within the church, He explained his vision for the future on the New Yorker Radio Hour. We will not go back. We want theological orthodoxy, theological conservatism, if you want to call it that. But we don't want misogyny and we don't want racism, nor do we want Christian nationalism, nor do we want some kind of fusion between the Republican Party and the Southern Baptist Convention. McKissick worries the convention is not learning from past mistakes. He came close to leaving in 2017. He put forth a resolution condemning white supremacy back then, and it ultimately passed, but it was close. Still, he has faith. He tells The New Yorker, I do believe that God is behind all of this disruption, breaking us down in order to recast us in a wonderful future. One thing no one tells you about experiencing homelessness, it's expensive. That's what Shannon Stickler says she learned a few months ago. She got laid off during the pandemic, and she wasn't making enough to afford her rent. That's how she found herself in a homeless encampment. Not having a fridge or a kitchen meant she had to spend money on fast food. Taking a shower meant spending $15 at a truck stop. Even using the bathroom came with a price tag. She had to buy a snack from the gas station anytime she wanted to use the facilities. Eli Saslow over at the Washington Post trains his eye in a neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. Throughout the pandemic, Saslow has been amplifying individual voices. He's been doing this 
to keep focus on the countless real-life experiences that seem to get overlooked when you have wave after wave of national tragedy. During the pandemic, many cities left homeless camps alone, but now that we're turning the corner on the coronavirus, authorities are dismantling these sites. Shannon is caught up in this. In Portland, neighbors complained about the encampment where Shannon was staying. They called up the city to report bonfires, drug use, loud noises through the night. When a team from the city finally came to break down the camp, Shannon wasn't even there. She was out pulling a full day shift at a construction site, and on her way back, she did food delivery to earn some extra cash. When she got back to the camp, a longtime resident there filled her in. They were given 48 hours to pack up and leave. For Shannon, who's just trying to find a home, this get-out order was another setback. She's working multiple jobs, trying to save up $5,000 to cover the security deposit and rent on a new place. But every setback eats away at her savings. The camp's closure boosted her bills. She had to pay to check into a motel and rent a storage space for her stuff. And this put her further away from a home. She says, It seems like every place I go disappears once I get there. You remember the movie Twister? Put your 90s goggles on. We're going to jog your memory. There's a flying cow in it. (laughs) Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, they go chasing after tornadoes in a pickup truck. There were a lot of chaotic scenes like this one. What is that? Yeah, all those special effects were tied together by a pretty thin plot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the main characters in this film, they were chasing storms. They were trying to put sensors directly in a twister's path. They were after data that could help better predict tornadoes. That movie is a quarter century old at this point. But one thing remains true. Scientists still are not very good at forecasting tornadoes. Vox looks at this really very dangerous problem. Tornadoes kill dozens of people every year and cause billions of dollars in damage. And part of the reason why they're so deadly is there's not much of a heads up. The average lead time for tornado warnings is around eight minutes. I mean, think about it. What could you grab in eight minutes in time to take cover? Also, the warnings are mostly wrong. False alarm rates can be up to 80%. Scientists do know that Tornadoes form in what are called supercell thunderstorms. But what's not easy is figuring out which one of these powerful storms is likely to produce a tornado. One big challenge is that it seems like the most important action is really close to the ground. The factors that determine whether a tornado forms seem to take place at really low altitudes where most radar technology is not very effective. Also, tornadoes are difficult to catch right? They move fast. They don't last for very long. One reason that hurricane predictions are so much better is because hurricanes are really easy to find and they're pretty slow and steady. Planes can fly in and out of hurricanes to collect data. There is hope that tornado forecasting can get better. Stronger computers and artificial intelligence could make existing models more accurate, but these models need good data to produce more accurate results. And here's where the movie Twister got something right about actual twisters. Meteorologists design tough machines that can take measurements in high winds. And they put them right in the path of tornadoes. And yes, they literally chase down storms to do so. As one researcher put it to Vox, 
When tornadoes tear through an area, most people hide in the basement. Scientists run to the roofs. And it may take that kind of daredevil research to improve warnings and ultimately save a lot of lives. If, like me, the last time you went to your office and sat at your desk was March of 2020, have you ever thought about what you left behind? Stacks of paper you thought you would get to next week? Your favorite mug? Well, Rachel Gutman at The Atlantic recently went back to her office and found an accidental science experiment in progress. One of her co-workers wondered about an apple that he'd left on his desk. Did it rot? Did it make a mess? Rachel found the apple right where it was abandoned, and it was nothing like you'd expect. Yeah, how do I describe this? Um, it wasn't a rotten mush, but it also wasn't exactly an apple anymore. You, re- you really have to look at the pictures to wrap your head around this. It was sort of wrinkled, shriveled up. It sort of looked like a prune, right? It had shrunk with the skin intact, as if it had been perfectly dehydrated. Sounds like me after a year of pandemic isolation. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel spoke with a whole bunch of food scientists, and the consensus is that a climate-controlled office is perhaps the best place for an apple to avoid getting totally consumed by those invisible microbes that crowd the air around us. Offices are pretty dry. The temperature is constant. It wasn't guaranteed to happen, But if a piece of fruit ever stood a chance to make it through a year plus outside a refrigerator, an office is the place to do it. You can read about how this relic of the before times looked, how it smelled, and yes, even how it tasted. We will link to this article in our show notes page. And while you're in the Apple News app, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow. 